This is CNN Breaking News. You're watching CNN. I'm Eleni Jankas, and we begin with the latest on Russia's war on Ukraine. Ukrainian forces have regained control of a town about 30 miles west of the capital, Kyiv. That's after days of heavy fighting. The military says the Ukrainian flag was raised once again in the city of Makariv as Russian troops retreated. Uh, and meanwhile, Kyiv is still under curfew until Wednesday morning local time. Now, in the port city of Mariupol, a Ukrainian National Guard officer telling CNN bombs are falling every 10 minutes. President Vladimir Zelensky says the city is being, quote, reduced to ashes. On Monday, Ukraine rejected a Russian demand that Mariupol's defenders surrender the city. Now, in Russia, a pro-Kremlin tabloid published a report that the Russian Defense Ministry had recorded nearly 10,000 troop deaths in this war. Now, that figure is almost in line with the Pentagon's estimates. But the tabloid later removed that uh, report, claiming it had been hacked. Meantime, President Zelensky addressed the Italian parliament earlier, urging Rome to give its support to more sanctions on Russia. Those who order the war and those who provoke it, almost all of them use Italy as a holiday resort. So don't be kind to murderers. Block their uh, funds block their assets all of for all of those who are using this money for war let them use it for peace senior international correspondent Frank Pleitkin joins us now live from Kyiv with the situation in the Ukraine uh, capital in Kyiv um, Fred, I, I want to delve into what happened in Makariv, uh, and I think this is really important because it shows, you know, just the fierce fighting that we've seen since the start of the war, but the Ukrainian ability to gain back some of this ground. How significant is this in terms of securing Kyiv? Well, I'd say it's extremely uh, significant, not just in terms of securing uh, Kiev, but then also uh, for the Ukrainians to fight back and try to push back some of those uh, Russian forces. And it certainly seems as though, uh, from what we're seeing, that indeed the Ukrainian forces have managed to get into that town of Makariv. As you noted, it's about 30 to 35 miles west uh, of Kiev. And of course, that's also a pretty important route to try and link uh, the Ukrainian capital to the west of the country, which of course is sort of the fallback ground uh, for Ukrainian forces as they conduct uh, their operations against the Russians who are invading. The Russians, of course, for their part, they've been trying to encircle the capital, Kiev, over the past couple of weeks, Eleni. And this is really a big blow to them because it obviously makes it so much more difficult and certainly shows that the Ukrainians are able to win ground back. Nevertheless, from where I'm standing right now and hearing right now, over the past couple of hours, Laney, there has been a massive battle waging, uh, raging uh, in the outskirts of Kiev, in the northern outskirts. We've been hearing it. We've been seeing it. There's massive plumes of smoke. There's explosions that we're constantly hearing as well over the past couple of hours. And we're also hearing sort of machine gun fire that actually seems to be pretty close uh, to the actual capital itself. So that battle is raging. It's unclear whether or not what we're hearing around here, uh, whether or not that's some sort of Ukrainian counteroffensive or whether the Russians are trying to push once again. Um, the Ukrainians claiming that they've shot down a Russian missile that was shot towards uh, the Ukrainian capital. They say that the remnants of that actually landed in the Dnieper River. So right now there is really a full-on battle going on in the northern outskirts of Kiev, while at the same time 
as you noted, the Ukrainian forces are saying that they are keeping the Russians at bay and also launching some counteroffensives as well, which, of course, are very significant indeed. Absolutely. Um, look, we know that you're in a curfew at the moment and you're in Kiev right now. Fred, I'd like to, you, for you to give us a sense of what it's like for civilians in terms of sort of everyday ability to move around, get access to food and water, and whether there's uh, a concern that the situation of being able to get goods in and out might change. Or, and we've, of course, let's qualify this, we've seen incredible uh, fierce fighting and defences from the Ukrainian military. Yeah, you know what? Of course, it's extremely difficult for the civilians here in the city and, and, and even more so in some of the other cities uh, here in this country. If you look at Mariupol, uh, for instance, which is absolute, uh, under absolute siege and where people are having trouble uh, getting anything uh, to eat, to drink, also with, with electricity uh, and heating uh, as well. And Kharkiv also is another city that is very much, of course, really on that frontline battle zone with the Russian forces conducting some offensive operations there. Uh, if you look at Kiev itself, it certainly is difficult also for the citizens here to get the things they need for daily life. Obviously, some uh, grocery shops are still open, but pretty much everything else is is closed. And then, you know, the people who live fairly close to the front lines, we were in one of those places yesterday where a Russian rocket hit. A lot of those people sleeping in their cellars, some of them sleeping in subway stations, uh, just to make sure that if their building is hit, they are not there and, uh, and wouldn't be wounded or, or, or even killed if that were the case very difficult to move along some of these checkpoints. And of course, the other thing that you have is you live here. You have that constant rolling thunder of explosions that happen, you know, at all hours of the day and of the night. So it certainly is something that right now for the citizens of this city and of other cities, obviously very traumatizing, very difficult time to go through. But at the same time, um, it does seem as though the morale of the people here is very high. And certainly the Ukrainian forces still obviously very much saying that they want to continue to defend defend and then also launch those counteroffensives uh, as well. So I would say the morale of the citizens and of the Ukrainian military still is extremely high. Incredible to hear that. Thank you so much, Fred, to you and your team for bringing us uh, the, this important reporting. Great to see you. Let's have more now from Phil Black in Lviv on that Russian newspaper report about troop losses. Which, Phil, wow, I mean, 10,000 troop losses, which is in line with what the Pentagon is saying. The, the tabloid saying that they were hacked, which is, is interesting if you think about how many people this uh, piece of information might have touched. Because we mustn't forget, these are still Russians that are fighting and losing their lives. And, and a number that could resonate with many families right now when they just don't know where their family might be. Yeah, Eleni, so this was the Russian tabloid, Komsomolskaya Pravda. It published a report very early Monday morning, just after midnight, in which, yes, it quoted uh, these very specific numbers. It talked about uh, the Ministry of Defence having recorded almost 10,000 soldiers killed in Ukraine. The specific figure it gave was 9,861, and it talked about a further 16,153 people being wounded. This report stayed up, posted, live for pretty much the whole day until late on Monday when it was removed. Uh, and Komsomolskaya Pravda said soon after that that it had been hacked and false information had been inserted into the report. Uh, President Putin's spokesperson, Dmitry Peskov, was asked about this. He declined to comment, saying that all matters regarding uh, soldier casualties are a matter for the Ministry of Defence. But the Russian Ministry of Defence hasn't given any official updated figure uh, for some time, for uh, not since the start of March, really, March the 2nd. Um, 
The notable thing about all of this, as you point out, is that that figure of around about 10,000 matches very closely with what the US State Department estimates uh, in terms of likely casualties among Russian soldiers. It says up to around that number, up to around 10,000 Russian soldiers are thought to have lost their lives uh, in this war so far. Eleni. Yeah. And, and Phil, I mean, we know that it's been inc incredibly demoralizing for the Russian military, for Vladimir Putin, and specifically because you've seen the Ukrainian military take back a key city. But in retaliation, we've seen an increase in bombardment. And one thing that number does also tell us in terms of 10,000 soldiers lost is that Putin is willing to throw as many resources as he possibly can uh, to try and win this war. That is the general feel of this war so far, certainly. If you accept that it hasn't gone the way Russia planned it to go, and that is the overall analysis from experts and governments around the world, that the plan was to to win this war very quickly, to take the capital, probably re replace the government. None of that has happened in the sense that we've seen no significant population centres, no major cities uh, have been captured. The general assessment is that the Russian invasion has stalled, but that does not mean that Russia is showing any less commitment to this conflict. Quite the opposite. It appears uh, to be uh, accepting the very high casualties that it appears to have suffered so far. And yes, as you point out, the analysis is that, and indeed the reports from the ground suggest, that although when they, close, uh, when they fight in close range to one another, the Russians are having certainly a tough fight of it, and, and that is something of a demoralizing force, uh, for, uh, factor for the Russian forces, what they are doing in order to compensate is to fire their munitions from a great distance uh, at an increasing rate, uh, sometimes in a targeted way, often uh, indiscriminately. And the reports of that sort of bombardment increasing uh, from around the country. Eleni. All right, Phil, thank you very much. Appreciate your insight. Now, the UN reports nearly one in every four people living in Ukraine has been forced from their home by the Russian invasion. More than three million have fled the country and nearly 6.5 million others are internally displaced. CNN's Ivan Watson spoke with one family from Mariupol about their ordeal. Children at play, frolicking in an arcade meant to host games of laser tag. But these are not normal times. The owners here have turned their children's entertainment business into a makeshift shelter, a place to house dozens of Ukrainians who just fled the besieged port city of Mariupol. The last couple of weeks were been like a hell. Dmitry Shvets, his wife Tanya, and their daughter Vlada escaped Mariupol on Thursday. They endured weeks of Russian bombardment from artillery and airstrikes. Each 15-20 minutes, you can listen the airplane. It was like targeted, targeted, and then the sound, you babam. Tanya kept a journal. March 2nd, day 7 of the war. Nothing's changed, she writes. No electricity or heat, and there's no running water now as well. They lived in the basement, and when they emerged, Tanya took photos and videos of their apartment building pockmarked with bullet holes unexploded shells in residential streets. Desperate people looting a bomb-damaged store for food. The problem is water. There is no water to drink. They scavenged for drinking water, pulling buckets from street sewers. Ah, if we were taking the water from the rainwater, taking the rain, waiting for the rainwater. 
Heavy shelling on nearby houses, Tanya wrote on March 5th. We all went to sleep with the thought of how to survive and stay alive. One day a shell exploded near Dimitri as he stood in line for water. A bomb fell down and killed like three people in front of us. One guy was without head. Uh, who was like uh, taking the water. Another one in the line was like a half of the head, and the last one was killed. With my own eyes, like not in a general, like uh, three people completely I saw killed, and we were making the grave for them. You dug a grave for them? Yes. In your neighborhood? Yes. Finally, it was all too much. The last day I saw my father, because my mother was completely destroyed mentally, I mean, was like a complete depression, was sitting in the cellar and even she haven't left the cellar since the beginning of the war, just staying inside, unfortunately. And the last day I saw my father and he begged me, like, please, guys, leave, leave somewhere. I don't know where, just escape this, escape this, and he was crying. Dimitri and his wife and daughter piled into a car with friends and spent 15 hours driving through Russian front lines to escape the siege of Mariupol their parents refused to leave. I don't know if I'm going to see my parents or listen to my parents again. I don't know, no idea. It's like living from day to day. Today we are alive, tomorrow maybe not. In the relative safety of this arcade built to entertain children, the kids welcome the escape from the conflict. I really want to say hello to other children, Tanya's seven-year-old daughter Vlada says, and I want the war to end quickly. Her parents appear haunted, clearly traumatized. Tanya gets a call from her mother in Mariupol, weeping and saying goodbye because she fears she will not survive the night. Ivan Watson, CNN, Dnipro, Ukraine. Let's take a look at some other stories making headlines around the world. A court in Russia has found jailed Kremlin critic Alexei Navalny guilty of fraud and contempt of court. He's been sentenced to nine years. Navalny is already serving a two and a half year sentence in a prison camp for charges he says were made up to hurt him politically. Nada Bashir has more from London for us. Look, Nada, this verdict is, it comes as no surprise for the people that have been watching Alexei Navalny's case. Um, tell me about the sentencing, nine years. I know the prosecution was looking for slightly more. Yeah, absolutely. He has been sentenced to at least nine years. That is the information that we've been hearing just coming in in the last hour. But as you mentioned there, the prosecution had been seeking uh, around 13 years in a maximum security penal colony. But what we know for now is that it is at least nine years. But his spokesperson and his team have raised some serious concerns about Alexei being moved to this maximum security penal colony. He's already been serving a two and a half year sentence at a penal colony just outside of Moscow. But now his team are concerned that this could mean practically no access uh, to Alexei Navalny if he is moved to this maximum security penal colony. And now, of course, we know that the Russian authorities have accused Alexei Navalny of widespread fraud, but he and his team have maintained throughout this process that this decision has been politically motivated. Now, in January, uh, Alexei Navalny and several members of his top uh, aides and his opposition movement were designated uh, extremists. They were added to Russia's extremist and terrorist 
Federal Register. His opposition movement was already deemed to be an extremist organization and shut down. But his team has maintained that this is all part of efforts by the Kremlin to really tighten their grip on opposition and to silence Alexei Navalny as one of the key opposition figures in Russia. Eleni? Nada Bashir, thank you very much for that update. Now, you're looking at live pictures from today's confirmation hearing for Joe Biden's nominee to the U.S. Supreme Court. Kedani Brown-Jackson is being questioned for the first time by members of the Senate Judiciary Committee. If confirmed, she will be the first black woman on the Supreme Court. Now, rescue workers are combing through difficult mountain terrain, trying to find survivors from a China Eastern plane crash or for at least clues about what brought the Boeing 737 down. They have not yet found the plane's flight data or cockpit voice recorder. And coming up, assisting Ukraine in the short and longer term, European financial institutions are preparing significant amounts of money to help rebuild. And using Star Power, a brokerage company, partners with Hollywood actors to get aid to Ukraine. Welcome back. The U.S. Federal Reserve is becoming increasingly worried about how Russia's war on Ukraine will impact inflation. Fed Chair Jerome Powell warning Monday that the central bank may have to get even more aggressive in fighting higher prices, suggesting a faster pace of rate hikes. Powell's comments triggered a fresh round of volatility on Wall Street Monday, but U.S. stocks futures are higher today. And in Europe as well, we're in the green. Now, oil prices have also turned higher. Brent crude and U.S. crude rose 7% on Monday. And that's on word that the EU is discussing a ban on Russian energy imports. Now, from the threat of energy and food shortages to concerns over trade and supply chain disruptions, the global economy will be feeling the effects of Russia's Ukraine invasion for months, if not years. The European Bank for Reconstruction and Development is offering more than $2 billion in aid to countries whose economies are affected by the war. And it is offering financial and logistical help to Ukrainian businesses. And it says it is ready to help Ukraine rebuild when conditions allow. Beata Yarvochik joins me now. She is the chief economist uh, at the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. Beata, thank you very much for joining us. Um, incredible to see the money that is on the table in terms of assisting Ukrainians, the neighboring countries. We're seeing millions of people that are currently fleeing their homes and seeking refuge. There's so many things that come up uh, here. It's firstly ensuring that the aid is given out and disseminated quickly. And then I'm sure in the back of your mind as an economist, you're thinking about how many steps uh, Ukraine is going to take backwards uh, as this war rages on. Thank you, Eleni. Pleasure to be joining you today. Um, indeed, the war has caused enormous suffering to the people of Ukraine, as well as enormous damage to the Ukrainian infrastructure. According to the Ukrainian government, the damage to buildings, bridges, roads has reached two thirds of GDP or $100 billion. Half of businesses in Ukraine have shut down. So the economic cost to the country is enormous and it's certainly uh, the country will be put a few, put back in terms of its development. But of course, the consequences of this war will be felt 
all over the globe uh, from Polish municipalities, which are trying their best to handle the influx of two million refugees to Middle East and Africa, where people are facing much higher grain prices, to American farmers who are facing higher cost of fertilizers. And even if the war ended today, the economic consequences will be felt well into next year. And that's because Ukraine is a breadbasket. And at this time of the year, Ukrainian farmers should be sowing and planting, and they are not doing that. And that means that this year's harvest is going to be lower. I mean, I'm so glad you spelt it out for us like that, because even President Zelensky warned of a food crisis and inflation. And he said that this year's yields are completely going to be hampered by uh, the war. But importantly, you know, when we hear stories from Mariupol, where you're seeing, you know, Zelensky said this, that the city is being turned to ash. This is a port city. This is such an important artery for the country. You're saying that the effects are going to be felt globally. Um, how much of this do you think the markets, you know, global, the global economy has actually priced in? Because it feels like we don't really know what we're in for at this point. Well, if you look at wheat prices, they are already in a inflation adjustment, adjusted terms at the level we last saw in 2008. And in 2008, we had a series of export restrictions on agricultural commodities. We had we had huge spikes in food prices that led to political instability and protest in 40 countries around the world. So this year, Ukraine has not sold all of its harvest yet. As you rightly mentioned, shipping in the Black Sea is not not functioning properly. Many shipping companies don't dare to go there. And um, food prices are already high. And what worries me is that countries may react to that with restricting exports of agricultural commodities. And if that happens, so, we may so see... Answer, uh, yeah, if that happens? If that happens, we may see a further increase in food prices. So we may see a domino effect and artificially created scarcity, which will hit poor countries, poor people, and um, it may lead to further instability and, of course, inflation. The revenues that are still funding Putin's war, sale of oil and gas, it's a tough one for the Europeans. It's basically a noose um, in terms of energy security. Should Europe incur this incredible pain to try and hurt Putin so that they stop inadvertently funding this war? It is a very difficult choice um, simply because we have global oil markets, but markets for natural gas are local. So while the U.S. has not seen much of an increase in prices of natural gas, Europe, in Europe, gas prices are at all time high. Um, so it is very difficult to make this choice. It's very difficult to obtain gas from other places because you need infrastructure to do that. Um, though in the sh- um, though Europe very has- quickly, because we're running out of time. 
I, I want to talk about Chernobyl. You know, you guys have been so important in terms of rehabilitating Chernobyl. It was a long-term project. Are you worried about what you're seeing in terms of the risks around it? Um, we are very concerned because lack of access uh, to fuel that may that calls, for instance, um, spent radioactive material um, or a stray rocket may cause damage. So certainly we are very concerned. Vyalta, thank you very much for your insights. Really important conversations to be having uh, about the contagion effects of this. Uh, much appreciated for your time. Thank you. All right, we're going to a short break, and when we return, uh, we continue our coverage of the Ukraine war. Stay with us. Welcome back. Here's a recap of the latest developments in the war in Ukraine. The, Euro the Ukrainian army says it has regained control of a town of about 50 kilometers west of Kyiv. The capital remains under a curfew until Wednesday morning local time. In an address to the Italian parliament, President Vladimir Zelensky urged lawmakers to support more sanctions on Russia. And a pro-Kremlin news outlet cited a Russian defense ministry count showing nearly 10,000 of its soldiers have been killed. It later took down that report, claiming it had been hacked. Now, U.S. President Joe Biden says the next escalation by Vladimir Putin could be a, quote, fairly consequential cyber attack on the United States. The White House has urged companies to beef up their cybersecurity, and it comes as Okta, which provides software that companies rely on to authenticate users, said it's investigating a possible data breach, although there's no suggestion it's Russia-related. We've got CNN's Arlette Sainz joining us now from the White House. Uh, Arlette, we know that Okta is not Russia-related. That's what we know for now. But this is an interesting warning because this might be the next step in terms of escalation of tensions uh, and, of course, in terms of the war that we're seeing playing out in Ukraine. What more do we know? Yeah, it, it really is, Eleni. And, and President Biden yesterday said that it's not a matter of if, but when Russia will decide to launch cyber attacks on the United States. And yesterday he issued a very stark warning uh, to private companies, urging them to beef up their cybersecurity defenses in the, the, the wake of possible threats coming from Russia uh, in the cyber realm. Last night, the president was speaking with CEOs and business leaders, urging them to step up their security defenses, saying that it is a patriotic obligation for them to do so. Now, the top uh, cyber official here at the White House said that there's not a specific credible threat at this moment, but that they have seen Russia engaging in preparatory activity. That includes scanning websites, looking for possible vulnerabilities in software. But if Russia were to go down this route, it would certainly open up a new phase in this crisis. This is of a top concern to the White House as Russia has the cyber capabilities to possibly wreak havoc on American companies and critical infrastructure. The federal government has said that they are taking steps themselves to ensure that their systems are protected and are asking private companies and sectors uh, with ties to critical infrastructure to take those same steps uh, in turn. Now, Last week, the administration briefed uh, companies and sectors who could be impacted, offering advice of the steps that they can take. But right now, President Biden has insisted yeah. that Russian President Vladimir Putin has shown this willingness to engage in cyber warfare and that it's part of his playbook that he might try to unleash, especially as he is getting pushed back up against the wall uh, as the invasion in, in Ukraine 
is not uh, going the way that he has planned and as he is still reacting to those punishing sanctions that the U.S. and Western allies have imposed on his country. Eleni. Yeah, Arlette, thank you very much for that update. Arlette signs there at the White House. Now, the West hopes that sanctioning Russia's richest will help pressure Vladimir Putin and perhaps stop him from further escalating the Ukraine crisis. Now, a nonprofit reporting network is shining a light on the opaque world of the oligarchs. They've launched a Russian asset tracker. We've got Anna Stewart joining us now. Anna, look, when you've got sanctions in play and you've got debilitating, uh, you know, sanctions against the richest there's you know you've got people wanting to find loopholes and assets and money being moved around what is this non-profit showing us it's an absolutely fascinating website that's been put together by a network of media outlets and they are listing 17 and a half billion assets that they say are owned by various russian oligarchs now currently we can show you the website is based on a list of oligarchs with links to president putin as given by the anti-corruption foundation which is led by the uh, opposition leader alexei navalny who of course is now jailed um they say they're going to add more names to it and more assets you can see there some very familiar names roman abramovich for example minimum asset wealth there at over eight billion dollars his net worth earlier this year was actually reported to be over 12 billion um, and he has been sanctioned by the eu the uk and canada now if you click onto his profile we can show you just some of the assets that this website alleges he owns. For instance, an $89 million uh, seaside estate on the French Riviera. You can see another one in Saint-Tropez, a lake house in Austria, a helicopter. And honestly, if you scroll down, this website says that there are some 81 assets identified as belonging to Roman Abramovich. And this website, I mean, this is not something that CNN can really confirm in terms of who owns these assets. And that is why this website exists. It is incredibly hard. Even a super yacht, which is widely reported to be owned by an oligarch, is often or almost always owned by a shell company with dummy directors, registered offshore, opaque lair after opaque lair. So this website hopefully may help authorities track some of those assets. It just shows, you know, who's operating in the grey and how easy it is for, uh, you know, oligarchs to operate in the grey. But is it going to make a difference? I even came across another, um, you know, operation that's looking at where the private jets are going mm. and also tracking the oligarchs. So I think, you know, the question is how can anyone respond to some of the, the tracking that we're seeing of these assets? It's incredibly hard. And even if you do freeze the assets that are easily visible in the West, like a super yacht or a private jet, um, that is probably the tip of the iceberg in terms of some of these people's wealth. And they have had, well, weeks now since the invasion to shift and shed assets, but actually years since the annexation of Crimea. So in terms of financially punishing uh, oligarchs and people with links to President Putin, I doubt it's really going to work, but it will put pressure on them. They are now unable, many of them and their families, to travel to the West. They are no longer able to holiday there. Their kids may not be able to be educated in the schools they've got used to in the UK or in the US. So there's some pressure there. And we have actually seen three oligarchs now come out uh, and speak out against the war in Ukraine. And that's fairly unprecedented. So in terms of the pressure on President Putin, of course, which we won't really see, perhaps it is working. All right, Anna, thank you very much. Fascinating. And a programming note uh, for you. Coming up in four and a half hours, time on Amanpour, uh, an exclusive interview with Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov, and that's at 6 p.m. London time and 9 p.m. in Moscow.
And coming up, millions of Ukrainians have been forced to leave their homes as war rips through the country. I'll be speaking to the CEO of a company that's coordinating efforts to bring aid to refugees. Stay with us. The United Nations says Russia's war on Ukraine has driven three and a half million people out of the country. The vast majority are heading west. Now, if you include those who are displaced but still in Ukraine, that number jumps to at least 10 million. That's almost a quarter of Ukraine's population forced out of their homes. The UN says more than 90 percent of those who have left Ukraine are women and children, and they are at a heightened risk of gender-based violence and other forms of exploitation and abuse. And then staying with the refugee crisis and the U.S. company Flexport is now using its resources to send much-needed aid to refugees affected by the war. Flexport is a global logistics platform that has been working to uh, ease supply chain pressures brought on by the pandemic. Now celebrities like Mila Kunis and Ashton Kutcher have been directing donations from a GoFundMe campaign to support Flexport's efforts. We just want to say that um, we hit our goal. Over $30 million raised. Over 65,000 of you donated. We are overwhelmed with gratitude for the support. And while this is far from a solve of the problem, our collective effort will provide a softer landing for so many people as they forge ahead into their future of uncertainty. Now, millions of dollars have been raised, but there is so much more work that needs to be done. And the founder and CEO of Flexport, Ryan Peterson, joins me now. Uh, great to have you on, Ryan. Uh, congratulations on all the work that you've been doing. I want you to give me a sense of just how much you've moved so far, how much uh, goods you've been able to get to the bordering countries of Ukraine to assist the refugee crisis. Yeah, hi there. Thanks for having me on. And, and you know, the reason we started Flexport.org is that so much of the aid that's delivered in a humanitarian crisis like this ends up in the landfill because the wrong products are shipped to the wrong place at the wrong time. And they're not partnering with local on the ground aid agencies and, and those providing hands on distribution and care to make sure that the right goods are shipped to the right place. So we've been partnered with UNICEF. Uh, Project Cure, which is one of the largest aid organizations in the world doing uh, exactly this kind of work and Project Hope, as well as Airlink. So a number of really established nonprofits. What Flexport doing is providing them with free shipping. So if they want to deliver anything to those areas to help refugees, and we're, we're uh, operating under the principle of neutrality, that look, we're not getting involved in this conflict. We, want, we don't want any of these people to be targeted as combatants uh, because we're just helping refugees, helping those who have been displaced. Uh, we shipped already, just in the first week, we shipped several plane loads worth of cargo from the United States. This is uh, hospital beds, pallets of things that are needed at these refugee camps, the diapers, um, things like feminine hygiene products, things like this that maybe go overlooked, but actually are what, what they're telling us is needed on the ground. And then we'll be shipping lots more goods in the years to come. The reality is that this is a many year journey. The average refugee is displaced for over 20 years. Absolutely. Look, I mean, look, supply chains are really fascinating. And I think for so many people, you know, it goes over their heads. If they, you know, give money or support a cause, they don't really know how their impact is made on the ground. I want you to take us through that supply chain and how you find the right routes in terms of getting things to people that need it as efficiently and as quickly as possible. 
Yeah, and the, and the key word is chain, right? Because there's many different organizations that need yeah. to come together. And this is a hard problem in the for-profit world where companies have all the resources in the world and are making a profit on the transactions. In the nonprofit world, they have less resources and they're operating under more stress, uh, more emotion. So it's a, it's a very hard problem. Um, the first step is work at start from the end uh, is those who are doing on the ground needs assessment. In this case, that's UNICEF, it's United Nations logistics cluster. What are, what are the actual products they need to make sure that they're the stuff that we deliver them is what's needed because if stuff goes to waste, that's okay in a crisis like this, as long as the right stuff does get there. But the problem is it clogs up the channels. It makes it difficult to deliver if a truck is backing up and nobody knows what's inside it and you're sorting through boxes, it just slows everybody down. So starting from the end is the first principle and get what do they want? What do they need right now? And then um, actually getting stuff to Poland, Moldova, Romania, neighboring countries, that's straightforward. Flexport does that every day on the behalf of thousands of for-profit companies um it's you know we've got partners with great very generous airline partners atlas air has donated to this campaign generously um we're trying to do as much as we can domestically within or at least within europe uh because air freight is quite expensive but you know in an emergency if that's what it takes uh going back to corporate donors so big companies that have these goods and and aid agencies that have stocks of these goods and getting them delivered um but the hardest part is needs assessment. So you're, you're, you're in the logistics. Yeah. You're in the logistics game. I want to know about last mile. So you're, you're helping neighboring countries. How do we solve the problem of getting goods to people that really need it in Ukraine? And then you also mentioned that you want to sort of stay neutral on this. In terms of sanctions against Russia, are you stopping routes around Russia? And importantly, in terms of uh, how this is impacting your business? Yeah, so... Um, Okay. Uh, apologies, Ryan. We're going to have to we're going to have to do this again. Uh, unfortunately, we have to go to some breaking news. UN uh, Secretary General Antonio Guterres is speaking live right now. We're taking you to the UN uh, headquarters. Invasion of the sovereign territory of Ukraine in violation of the UN Charter. It was done after months of building up a military force of overwhelming proportion along the Ukrainian border. Since then, we have seen appalling human suffering and destruction in cities, towns, and villages. Systematic bombardments that terrorize civilians, the shelling of hospitals, schools, apartment buildings, and shelters. And all of it is intensifying, getting more destructive and more unpredictable by the hour. 10 million Ukrainians have been forced from their homes and are on the move. But the war is going nowhere fast. For more than two weeks, Mariupol has been encircled by the Russian army and relentlessly bombed, shelled, and attacked. For what? Even if Mariupol falls, Ukraine cannot be conquered city by city, street by street, house by house. The only outcome to all these is more suffering, more destruction, and more horror, as far as the eye can see. The Ukrainian people are enduring a living hell, and the reverberations are being felt worldwide with skyrocketing food, energy, and fertilizer prices threatening to spiral into a global hunger crisis. Developing countries were already suffocating under the burden of COVID and the lack of access to adequate financing. Now they are also paying a heavy price as a result of this war. 
At the same time, we cannot lose hope. From my outreach with various actors, elements of diplomatic progress are coming into view on several key issues. There is enough on the table to cease hostilities now and seriously negotiate now. This war is unwinnable. Sooner or later, it will have to move from the battlefield to the peace table, and that is inevitable. The only question is how many more lives must be lost? How many more bombs must fall? How many Mariupols must be destroyed? How many more Ukrainians and Russians will be killed before everyone realizes that these were no winners, only losers? How many more people have to die in Ukraine? And how many people around the world will have to face hunger for this to stop? Continuing the campaign is morally acceptable, politically insensible, and militarily nonsensical. What I heard from this podium almost one month ago should be even more evident today. Any measure, by even shrewdest calculation, it is time to stop the fighting now and give peace a chance. It is time to end this absurd war. Thank you. Right, that is UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres uh, and, and speaking about how he believes that the war should end now, that give peace a chance. And then he really spoke quite strongly about the food insecurity that could be facing so many countries around the world, specifically the poorer countries, talking about the inflationary impact of this war, of the sanctions on Russia, but importantly, the fact that Ukraine is a breadbasket and now has been crowded out of uh, the world economy. Also importantly, uh, he mentioned the 10 million people that have been displaced and of course the refugees that have uh, left um, Ukraine. And he asks the question, how many more Mariupols should there be before uh, they cease uh, the war? Um, so many interesting points there, but a message that he's been repeating uh, since the start of this war. All right, I'll have more news on this uh, right after the break. Stay with us. According to the UN, Poland is now one of the world's largest recipients of refugees with more than 2 million as of Tuesday. CNN's Ed Lavandera shows us one Polish couple opening their home to dozens of people fleeing from the war. The children enjoy a game of hide-and-seek with a young boy hiding in the corner. But they're not siblings, they're new friends, brought together by war and the goodwill of Yaroslav Shiontitsky and his wife Malgozata. They opened their home to this Ukrainian family who escaped the war zone less than a week ago. When did you decide to help Ukrainian refugees? Mm, when the first bomb uh, go down. Since the war started, the Schwintitsky family has taken in 46 people. This truck driver, who recently recovered from cancer, says helping Ukrainian refugees is something he has to do. Why have you opened up your house to so many people? Because we should. It's, it's, it's in Polish tradition, I think, to, to open our hearts, to open our homes for someone who is in need. And he's quick to think of the little things that make his guests feel at home. Yulia Grishko is in Poland with her seven-year-old son 
four-month-old baby along with her elderly parents. Today is her birthday. She wanted us to see the gifts she received from her hosts, blue and yellow flowers, Ukraine's national colors. Yulia and her family escaped from the eastern Ukrainian city of Dnipro last week. The fighting has intensified around their hometown. So uh, on March 13th at 5.30 in the morning, a Russian fighter jet flew over your home. What were you thinking in that moment? She says, this was the turning point. I realized that I could no longer endure it. At that moment, I thought I had to save my children. Yulia is a police officer at home. She was on maternity leave when the war started. Now it's up to her to figure out what to do next as the war drags on. But she says her heart is in Ukraine with the family she left behind. My heart stayed at home, she says. I'm scared for my relatives. But thank God I'm in a warm place surrounded by kindness and have inner peace. This family here in Poland, will you always consider them part of your family? Yes, she says, they have already become part of our family. On this night, far from home, Yulia was treated to a birthday cake surprise and a lovely version of the song Stola, the traditional Polish birthday song. Yulia tells us her only wish is for peace and the end of war so her family can return home. Ed Lavendera, Szymyszyl, Poland. And incredible acts of kindness during tough times. Well, that's it for the show. Thanks so much for watching. I'm Eleni Jokas. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next. Stay with CNN. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.